0: Hey everyone, this is gonna be another unusual unorthodoxy podcast. I'm actually in the thick of quite a bit of mayhem, a lot of work at the moment. I've got a few deadlines for some research I'm busy working on and I've got my usual day job and all the usual life sort of things. So to be very honest, I'm way behind on pretty much everything else, including uh prep for for this podcast. I've got some really great ideas and I, I'm very eager to share them with you, but um, while I'm sort of catching up, I thought I'd use this opportunity to post a talk I gave towards the end of last year. Uh, this was at a forum called TGIF, as in, thank God it's Friday. It's a thing that happens every Friday morning very early, 6.30am, uh, and I'm speaking here to friends in a rather rowdy coffee shop, which means that the sound isn't great. Um, and I'm sorry about that. I think I used my iPhone to record this, so the quality isn't brilliant but i think the content is good and worth sharing and i really hope you enjoy it uh, the topic was unconscious belief and you'll find out soon enough what that means cheers everyone enjoy i'm, I'm not really prepared for today so it's probably going to go really well uh, so I'm, i want to start with something from a mystical philosopher named simone bay who's quite brilliant she says this thing, a case of contradict a case of contradictories which are true. God exists, God doesn't exist. Where is the problem? I'm quite sure that there is a God in the sense that I'm quite sure that my love is not illusory. I'm quite sure that there is not a God in the sense that I'm quite sure that nothing real can be anything like what I am able to conceive when I pronounce this word. But that which I cannot conceive is not an illusion, and I know that no one got that, and that's okay. It's going to get. It can only go up from there. A good way to start a talk is: you're all going to die. Things can only get better from here. Okay. Um, it's not, every <laughs> it's not a very good story. It's not a good story. So I'm going to, another th- uh, quote which sort of links to this idea of, of believing contradictories is from Neil Gaiman's book, American Gods, which is very long and quite controversial and very interesting. Um, he says, I can believe, this is quite long, so bear with me. I can believe things that are true and things that aren't true, and I can believe th- things when nobody knows if they're true or not. I can believe in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and the Beatles and Marilyn Monroe and Elvis and Mr. Ed. Listen, I believe that people are perfectible, that knowledge is infinite, that the world is run by secret banking cartels and is visited by aliens on a regular basis. Nice ones that look like wrinkled lemurs and bad ones who mutilate cattle and want our water and our women. I believe that antibacterial soap is destroying our resistance to dirt and disease so that one day we will all be wiped out by the common cold like the Martians in War war of the Worlds. I believe that it is aerodynamically impossible for a bumblebee to fly, that light is a wave and a particle, that there's a cat in a box somewhere who's alive and dead at the same time. I believe in a personal God who cares about me and worries and oversees, worries about me and oversees everything I do. I believe in an impersonal God who sets the universe into motion and went off to hang with her girlfriends and doesn't even know I'm alive. I believe in an empty and godless universe of causal chaos, background noise, and sheer blind luck. I believe in absolute honesty and sensible social lies. I believe in a woman's right to choose, a baby's right to live that while all human life is sacred, there's nothing wrong with the death penalty if you can trust the legal system implicitly, and that no one but a moron would ever trust the legal system. I believe that life is a game, that life is a cool joke, that life is what happens when you're alive, and that you might as well lie back and enjoy it. So uh, that is belief, and belief is usually defined in two, two ways it is firstly an acceptance of something that exists as being true especially if there is no proof of it uh, it can also be so linked to this, it's the idea of a, having a firmly held opinion it's, um, it's actually the acceptance of something as true that tends to be common, it's this acceptance of something that is true that tends to be associated with religious conviction and the second definition of of belief is that it is confidence in something or someone Okay, so it's it's basically acceptance of something or confidence in someone or something. Okay, that, Those are the two common definitions of belief. And what I've dis- discovered in grappling with belief, and that's what we're going to do a little bit now, is that belief is not a stable category. Um, so it's, it's not something that is necessarily as simplistic. You can't simplistically define it as what people commonly do, because it's it's not that simple. So what I'm going to do is look at why I think it's not that simple, or in what ways it's not that simple, and then I want to look at redefining, or at least, yeah, redefining belief or trying to create a different understanding of belief. And to do this, I want to start with uh, G.K. Chesterton. is apparently quite brilliant. <laughs> he, he has this idea of the philosophical policeman. He, he introduces this in his book, the Man, uh, the Man Who Was Thursday, which is a wonderful detective story. And he, one of the philosophical policemen describes their job. He says, the work of the philosophical policeman is at once bolder and more subtle than that of the ordinary detective. The ordinary detective goes to pothouses to arrest thieves. We, philosophical policemen, go to artistic tea parties to detect pessimists. The ordinary detective discovers from a ledger or a diary that a crime has been committed. We discover from a book of sonnets that a crime will be committed. We have to trace the origin of those dreadful thoughts that drive men on, to, on at last to intellectual fanaticism and intellectual crime. <laughs> and his point here, which I think is so, so helpful He says, in a way, what a normal detective does Is they spend a lot of time looking at, at the surface of things They look at crimes and they're looking at causality materially they're, they're, Motivation is not really part of the Or it's not a massive part of the criminal investigation Chesterton says we need to get right down to the level of belief But belief is not that simple And a way to start to introduce the complexity of belief is to to get to um, a joke that I really love about a guy who thought he was dog food. He really believed he was dog food. And so he went to therapy because he was fostered by his family, taken to the therapist, and put in actually into a mental hospital. And worked for years through this issue of his thinking that he was dog food. And eventually he was convinced could say with confidence, I am not dog food. And so he was released off into the world, and unfortunately, uh, as he was walking out of the asylum, dogs started barking everywhere, and this freaked him out completely, and he ran back into the asylum, ran to his therapist's office, shut the door, and stared at his, thera- at his therapist in the face. And the therapist said to him, "What? what on earth could be wrong? He said, there are dogs everywhere. And the therapist looked at him and said, but you know you're not dog food. He says, I, I know, I know I'm not dog food, but the dogs don't know it.
1: <laughs>
0: and so what you have here are two mental processes. You have his belief that, that, that he is not dog food. And then you have his actions, which demonstrate that on some other level he does believe. He is dog food. There is what he is conscious of. There is what he claims to believe. And then there is what he is unconscious of, which is actually what he really believes. And and this is, I think, this kind of idea of... I mean, this is hypocrisy in a way. This kind of idea is, is echoed in a story about a guy named Charles Frederick Peace. Anyone heard of him? I hadn't either. So, you know, until recent, this week. Um, he... He was a, a murderer and a burglar, and on his way to, to being executed for his crimes, uh, th- this is the story that gets um, told. On the morning of his execution, Peace ate a hearty breakfast of bacon, and only bacon apparently, and calmly waited the coming, the coming of the public executioner, whose name was William Marwood. I thought executioners were, you never named them, but that was the name of his executioner. And Charles Peace was escorted on the death walk by the prison chaplain who was reading aloud from the consolations of religion. Note what he was reading from the consolations of religion. About the fires of hell. (laughs) Peace burst out, and he said this to the chaplain. Sir, if I believed what you you and the Church of God say you believe, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it, if need be, on hands and knees and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from eternal hell like that. And I think this is such a potent way of confronting the he confronts the priest with the fact that he believes in hell, but acts as if he doesn't believe in it. In fact, he believes in it, but also doesn't believe in it. Um, and this, this junction between belief and action, that's kind of common. I think you can find it in everyday life. Uh, we believe in serving the poor How many of you have had You don't have to tell me uh, Have had a conversation with a poor person this week A proper human conversation So you, we, we have all, all of these beliefs But we believe none of them um, Louis C.K. The, the comedian He talks about having his little believing Believees 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 They're little, my little believees They're nice But I don't believe any of them um, but this gets a little more complicated. Um, and, and another story Chesterton tells is about a guy who's, who's in a court of law. And he's told that he, he has to swear an oath with his hand placed on the Bible. And the guy says, I won't do it because I ain't religious. Mm-hmm. And so the court uh, goes, okay, no, that's not, that's not a problem. Just take a little time. Just, you have to swear an oath. So just swear an oath. Just promise that you'll tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, etc. And he does exactly that. He swears the oath. And then at the end, this guy who says he ain't religious says, so help me God. Um, <laughs> and so th- this is what Chesterton describes as having a head like a waste paper basket. Such a beautiful image. I mean, everyone is filled with the very ideas that they think they have thrown away. So everyone's going, I don't believe this. And they're throwing their ideas away. But they don't realize they're throwing it into their own heads. Um, so there is there is a disjunction, what we've talked about, a disjunction between belief and action. And then there is a disjunction between conscious belief and unconscious belief. There's what you think you believe, and then there's what you actually believe. And And as if that's not sort of proof enough, it's helpful to look at a, a bit of science. So... Um, V.S. Ramachandran, who's a neuroscientist, did these experiments on split brain patients. These are patients whose left and right lobes of the brain or halves of the brain do not communicate. They're not talking to each other. And so he started thinking, Ramachandran started thinking, I wonder if the, these are like two different people, <laughs> maybe in the, same, in the same body. And of course that's symbolic of everyone. Uh, and so he, he de- devised just to, <laughs> well, exactly. Um, so he devised an experiment. The, the right half of the brain c- can't control the speech sensor. So he taught it to point, to point at a chart that said, uh, that had different options. Yes, no, I don't know. Okay, so those were the options. And the left uh, brain obviously can control the speech sensors. And he asked very con- like concrete questions. Are you in California? Are you on the moon? So are you in California? Yes Are you on the moon? No um, Are you a woman? He asked this to the, the right lobe uh, This was to a guy And the, the right brain said Yes He's a woman And then started chuckling So obviously the right side of the brain Had a bit of a sense of humor
1: um,
0: And then he asked the question Do you believe in God? And the right brain said And the, well started with left Left brain said Yes said yes. The right one went no. So you have... And, and this is an interesting thing. You have two beliefs in the same body, in the same person. This is symbolic of all of us. And what Ramachandran then jokes is, he says, well, this is, this raises very profound theological questions. Um, if this person dies, what happens? Does the one hemisphere go to heaven and the other <laughs> one go to hell? And then he says, I don't know the answer to that. Um, and so, but I, I think... I want to, you know, highlight that question. I think it's a really very important one. Cognitive scientists estimate that we are around 95% unconscious. That is very generous. I know people that I'm pretty sure... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, probably 105% <laughs> uh, unconscious, especially, especially on a Friday morning. Uh, so, I don't know if you've ever thought about what goes on in your brain while you're having a conversation with someone, uh, the, uh, and this is a terrible list, but it comes from um, Lackhoff and Johnson's b- uh, book, Philosophy in the Flesh. In the process of having a conversation, before you respond, this is what's going on. You are accessing memories, you are comprehending a stream of sounds as being language, dividing it into distinct phonetic features and segments, identifying phonemes, these are distinct units of sound, and you're grouping them into morphemes. Not morpheme.
1: <laughs>
0: probably need that. The smallest meaning of u- uh, meaningful units of language. Then you are assigning a structure to a sentence in accordance with the vast number of grammatical constructions that are possible in your native language. You are picking out words and giving them meanings appropriate to context. You are making semantic and pragmatic sense of the sentence as a whole. We're halfway. <laughs> you are framing what is said in terms of w- that are relevant to the discussion. You are performing inferences relevant to what is being discussed. You are constructing mental images where relevant and inspecting them. You are filling in gaps in the discourse. You are looking for implications. You are noticing and interpreting your interlocutor's body language. You are anticipating where the conversation is going and you are planning what to say in response. Which is why sometimes when you have a conversation with a person, you feel a bit drained. (laughs) All of this, okay, all of this is happening unconsciously. Now there are two Forms of the unconscious. The one is the cognitive unconscious, which is what Lakoff and Johnson are referring to, and then there is the uh, Freudian unconscious. Freud didn't invent the unconscious; he kind of discovered it. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that we we really do operate a great deal of the time from an unconscious, from unconscious impulses, unconscious desires. There are all sorts of complications that happen along with this. And both of these forms of the unconscious basically confirm something that Pascal said, which is that the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. The heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. So with this in mind, I think it's important to point out, number one, that the self is divided. And that's, that's, just a fact of our human experience. We are divided selves. We are not entirely unified. I think unification and wholeness, that's something we strive for. But it is not our dominant experience of the world. Also, belief and disbelief or unbelief can coexist in that same divided self. That's the second thing. And we find this, uh, uh, one of my favorite verses in, in the New Testament is from Mark 9, where Jesus heals a boy and the father of that boy exclaims, I believe help my unbelief. And the most even the most orthodox interpretations of that suggest that the object of belief is the same or unbelief is the same. It's not like I believe this thing and therefore I disbelieve that. It's They're directed towards the same person. And this is this is this guy's experience, and I think it, it actually hints at the experience that a lot of us have. So what are we dealing with? I think there are basically three sort of facets of belief that, that are helpful to notice. The first is the contradiction between belief and action, which you could, you could articulate like this. For theists, it would be, I know very well that God exists. Nevertheless, I act as if he doesn't. For atheists, it could be, I know very well that God doesn't exist. Nevertheless, I act as if he does. <laughs> okay? The second uh, type well, kind of category of belief is the contradiction between conscious belief and unconscious belief. You could call this self-deception in a way. This is captured in, in the joke about the man who thought he was dog food. It's like, I know very well that God, God doesn't exist but does God know it?
1: <laughs>
0: or the opposite, I know very well that God exists, but I'm not sure that God knows He exists. Um, uh, this is something that the psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan does. He does a very interesting thing. He says that, that the, right, the correct formula for the death of God, which is a Nietzsche's idea, is not that God is dead, but rather that God is unconscious. I.e., God functions as part of the unconscious. You can cognitively or consciously disbelieve in God, but God will still function as a part of your actual engagement with the world. Which is why I mentioned uh, at one of my previous talks that, that uh, the most vehement atheists I know are also the most moralistic. Mm. They're like, there are right things to do. You have to do the right, like why? What's the ground for that? So you can, you can kill God at the conscious level, but you're still functioning as if, as if God exists. That would, you know, how that particular thing works is up to you. Okay, so, that, so that's the second form of belief. That's a co- contradiction between conscious and unconscious belief. Then you have the most surprising phenomenon of all, where belief and action um, actually coincide and they're fine Co- belief uh, where conscious and unconscious belief agree this is uh, captured quite nicely in, the, in Groucho Marx's statement I, I know he, is a, he talks like an idiot and he acts like an I- idiot but don't let that fool you he really is an idiot <laughs> and, the, and the, so in, in, the, in the realm of belief it would be I know he talks like a Christian and he acts like a Christian but don't let that fool you he really is a Christian <laughs> This is actually not a problem, this is not, the, 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 this is not complicated, this is not the, uh, the level of belief that I want to deal with, so I want to deal primarily with what we do with these sort of disjunctions between conscious and unconscious belief. And what we do, I think, is that we need to change how we conceive of belief. The, the contemporary understanding of belief regards it largely as an epistemic category. In other words, it's, it's a knowledge category. It's what you know consciously exists. But once upon a time, this is not how people thought of belief. For most of history, this is not how people conceived of belief. Okay, This is a recent, it's a modern phenomenon. Um, it applies to people on all sides of the spectrum, but I want to refer to the New Atheists, uh, well, an example from the New Atheists' as discussed by Sean Illing. The new atheists are straw men. They straw man themselves, which is a bit unfortunate. And so they're kind of. I see them as kind of adolescent theologians who are reeling from bad Sunday school lessons. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are important symbols, I think, of what is going on in our culture. And what Sean Illing says about them, he says the real problem with the new atheists is that they think of God only in epistemological terms. Consequently, they have nothing to say to those who affirm God for existential reasons. Sean Elling is an atheist himself, so it's it's an interesting, uh, so that'll help you to understand what else he says. He says, new atheist writers tend to approach religion from the perspective of science. They argue that a particular religion isn't true or that the empirical claims of religious texts are false. That's easy to do. The more interesting question is why religious religions endure in spite of being empirically untrue. There are, of course, millions of fundamentalists for whom God is a literal proposition. Their claims concerning God are empirical and should be treated as such. For many, though, God is an existential impulse, a transcendent idea with no referent in material reality. This conception of God is untouched and untouchable by positivist science. Asking if God is true in this sense is like asking how much the number 12 weighs. <laughs> it is nonsensical. It is basically what I would call a category error. So you can, you can put God into a particular category and still end up talking complete nonsense because you're putting him in the same category as the imaginary, which is why a lot of people compare believing in God to believing in fairies because they put God into the conceivable, the imaginary but God is fundamentally inconceivable even to those who believe okay so this shift in an epistemic to an epistemic view of faith can be explained only part if only partially by Hegel's dialectic I don't know if you know, uh, you've know, you ever heard of Hegel's dialectic, but it, is, it begins with a thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Have you ever heard of that? So there's a thesis and then the antithesis comes along and fights against the thesis and then there's a synthesis. Well, that's a bit of a simplification of Hegel's dialectic. And this is where it gets really interesting. So, what actually happens, Hegel's whole point is that you actually start with the antithesis, you start with the negative. Some people in the Enlightenment, for example, come along and they say things like, religion is nonsense, it's all superstition. And they fight against this thing. But religion is, is a bit of a, an ill-defined thing. Even now, it's different. every religion defines itself for itself. But the Enlightenment pushes against this thing, this nebulous thing called religion. What happens in the process is religion pushes back but it does so according to the coordinates of the antithesis so it fights back in rationalist enlightenment terms the moment the thesis, the religion becomes a location within the enlightenment structure becomes a location within the antithesis that is the synthesis does that make any sense? Okay, so it's quite a bizarre and unusual way of looking at it but you have what the point is that when you're looking back at something the look through something else the thing you're looking at changes if you look at religion belief let's use that word through an enlightenment modernist logic you're going to end up with something other than what it was originally And this is most evident, I think, in in a great deal of Christian apologetics, which uses enlightenment coordinates in order to argue for the validity of religion. A proviso. This is not necessarily bad, and in fact, it's not necessarily wrong. You can still argue for the, the rational validity of, say, Christianity using enlightenment coordinates, but you also need to realize there's something else going on that your rationalizations will not be able to account for. Okay. Um, and I, I think this, this sort of uh, rationalist approach to Christianity is quite nicely discussed by a guy named uh, George Hoffman. He's got this fantastic article called Atheism as a Devotional Category, which is uh, absolutely marvelous. <laughs> And a very a very difficult article because he discusses some of the historical complexities of the issue. And I'm not, by the way, I, I hope you figured out I'm not on the side of the atheists, or the Christians here. I'm kind of going, maybe we've all <laughs> missed it. Uh, that is a side. It's not a view from nowhere. It's just a view from in the middle and slightly outside. So George Hoffman says, in order to formalize themselves, and I would say against, against this Enlightenment logic, Reformed confessions, and it's especially Protestantism that does this, okay? Reformed confessions needed to be able to treat belief as a stable thing, as an axiom, not a hope or an ideal toward which one might strive. As belief became more reified, thingified is the word, um, its opposite, faithlessness, assumed no less concrete and determinate a form. In effect, writers increased Increasingly awarded to doubt the status of an objective category I.e. doubt as antithetical to this objective category called belief And they then imparted an even more radical cast to lapses of faith So as belief assumed a more unconditional sharply defined cognitive emphasis Unbelief consequently adopted less provincial and everyday quotidian manifestations Which I realize... It was a horrible quote to choose. <laughs> it's quite nice to read, but uh, not nice to speak about. Okay, the point. The short, the short version is that, uh, and there's a philosopher named Bruno Latour, who claims that modern atheists need to believe in believers in order to be atheists. And the same goes for believers. What happens is people relegate the category of unbeliever to another person. Instead of recognizing that the original impulse is an internal one, the battle between belief and unbelief is internal. Yeah. It's a battle between conscious and unconscious belief, not between one person who has a particular bunch of cognitive assumed claims and someone else. So the other,
1: so other is out yeah. there now.
0: The, the other is out there. The, the enemy is out there we find it's interesting you can form communities along these lines if you form your community according to choosing an enemy the enemy is the problem but they're actually the reason your community exists they're actually the solution they're the reason you can form your community that's the first the negative form the other form of community is solidarity in fact that is what the original impulse of Christianity was, solidarity with the other. As soon as your church becomes the holy huddle of the chosen frozen, you're basically you're basically saying that we're in and they're out. We're going to heaven, they're going to hell. And I mean, if you look at the patristics alone, the, the early church fathers, you'll realize that that's not what Christianity started off as in any way. Okay. So good, that, that's nice. So in short, what I'm saying is that the terms theist, atheist, and agnostic, among others, any kind of uh, terms that would describe belief, are more easily indicative of a personal inner struggle than of contesting ideologies. The atheist is out there is merely an excuse not to deal with the atheist in here. Okay. to be human is to wrestle with what we can and cannot understand through belief and in any case and this is worth pointing out to quote Philip K. Dick reality is that which when you stop believing in, in it doesn't go away <laughs> I think there's a lot of, uh, there's this tendency as soon as you treat belief as a cognitive category you, it's, it becomes magical you believe certain things and reality itself changes now there is a sense in which that is true but there are also very, very big senses in which that is not true. Um, so in, in a great deal of Christian culture, there's the sinner's prayer. So if you ascribe to certain things, you are now a transformed individual. And that's just, we know that's not true. It doesn't work like that. Okay, so we need to challenge the, I'm not saying that it's bad, and I'll get to that. It's, it's just that it's not the whole story. It's a limited, tiny perspective. Interestingly enough, and this is where we get to some uh, basic theology. The original meaning of the word belief in the New Testament is very closely aligned with hope and love. Um, and this is why Paul couples these throughout his letters: faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. Why? And the greatest of these is love, not belief, not faith. that's that's part of it. But because the, his whole point is that. Um, in fact let me first mention this Marcus Borg is a fantastic theologian um, he says a better translation of the word belief would be beloved um, this is what faith really means it means it, it is a question faith is a question and it is the, this is the question I think in the way I would formulate it how do you attend to and open yourself up to reality in order to direct your love I will say it again Faith means this, how do you attend to and open yourself up to reality in order to direct your love? The question of faith is not primarily a question of what you agree with. It is primarily about how you direct your attention and it is about how you love. In other words, faith is a posture towards reality. It's whole being, it's existential, it is not just epistemic, knowledge category driven. So, does this mean that doctrines, dogmas, creeds and all of those sorts of things are irrelevant? And I would say absolutely not. They're not irrelevant. What you believe, in other words, what you're confident in and what you're convinced by, still plays a fun- fundamental role in directing your attention. It shapes your posture towards reality. That is the purpose of that sort of belief, the cognitive thing. It's to help direct how you're face, where you're facing, okay? But what you believe will always be grounded and couched in mysteries, and three mysteries that I think are the top mysteries, or the bottom ones, depending on your metaphor. It's the mystery of our conscious awareness, how does that work? Um, we don't know. So, there's the mystery of that. There is the mystery of being itself. We are here. Wow. Um, and then there is the mystery of this pull that we all feel towards wholeness and happiness. Those three mysteries guide all human beings. And By the way, those are, if you look traditionally, that is by definition God. God is conscien- consciousness, being, and bliss. Okay? There is this pull we all feel it's an existential impulse that we can't help because it is not from us. It f- is from some other transcendent source. And someone who I think uh, discusses mystery really well, his name is G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> and he says this. We just found <laughs> <laughs> G. <laughs> okay. okay, he says this mysticism keeps men sane. Uh, forgive the sexist language, he was from the post-Victorian era mysticism keeps men sane as long as you have mystery you have health when you destroy mystery you create morbidity the ordinary man has always been sane because the ordinary man has always been a mystic he has permitted the twilight he has had one foot in earth and the other in fairyland he has uh, always left himself free to doubt his gods but unlike the agnostic of today also free to believe in them He has always cared for more for truth than for consistency. And that's important for the disjunctions we've been dealing with. If he saw two truths that seemed to contradict each other, like the truth of the presence of atheism and theism in the same person, um, he would take both truths and the contradiction along with them. His spiritual sight is stereoscopic, like his physical sight. He sees two different pictures at once. And yet sees all the better for that. Thus he has always believed that there was such a thing as fate, but also such a thing as free will. Thus he believed that children were indeed the kingdom of heaven, but nevertheless ought to be be obedient to the kingdom of earth. Mm -hmm. He admired youth because it was young and age because it was not. It is, is exactly this balance of apparent contradictions that has been the whole buoyancy of the healthy person. The whole secret of mysticism is this, that human beings can understand everything by the help of what they do not understand.